right, we are going to be finishing up the book of Romans tonight, and I don't know what book I'm going to next. Uh, open to suggestions. I have not, uh, I've not even really thought much about it, but here we are, uh, finally finishing up the book of Romans. I know I've really enjoyed a lot. It is just, I feel like this study, it has just strengthened and confirmed, uh, the beliefs, uh, that I hold, the beliefs of this church. And as we've been going through this, I don't feel like we've had to correct any of our doctrinal statement, especially on salvation. It's just confirmed it, and I think that's a good thing. And so now we're in chapter 16, and the first part of this letter uh, is kind of a very personal part. It is this, uh, something dispensationalists they often like to do, is they always like to bring up, uh, they like to bring up how you always have to look at who it's written to. And then they, which is true, but then they use that to jump to a false conclusion that's to the Jews, therefore, you know, we can't get anything from it. Well, this was written to the Romans. It wasn't written to Liberty Baptist Church. It was written to the Romans. In fact, it was written to these people whose names we're about to read. And so, obviously, there are some things in the Bible we can't do. We can't greet Priscilla and Aquila, even though the Bible says to do that. We can't do it. Okay? But obviously, we can learn, you know, hey, we can learn from these things. We get principles from these. We do that in all of the Bible. And so, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I actually preached a whole message called The People Behind Paul, where I went through all these names and we looked at specific things that he mentions. But let's go ahead and read this section. And it says in verse 1, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Chentria. And that is a good name, that is a good title she was a servant. In fact, if you look at the very end of the chapter 2, I don't know, if this it might not be in everyone's Bibles, it says, written to the Romans from Corinthus and sent by Phoebe, servant of the church at Chentria. And that word, that word servant, that is a good thing. In fact, uh, a lot of the new Bibles, it, it probably doesn't hear, but in a lot of places where the King James says servant, you want to know what word it uses? Slave. A slave, which is like a cuss word now because of the Civil War and all that kind of stuff. But being a servant, it's not a bad thing. It is a good thing. And she was a servant of the church. And then verse 2, it says that ye receive her in the Lord as become a saint, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succor of many and of myself also." This woman was so good at what she did. She was such a help and a blessing to the church. Paul, he said, you assist her in whatever she needs. Is he putting a woman in charge? No, he's just putting, he's telling people, hey, this woman, her work that she does is so good, it's so productive, assist her. Because you know what her work was? Assisting other people. Her work was being a servant. She wasn't being a lord over people. She served. She was good at it. She knew what she was doing, and she was a blessing to many, including the Apostle Paul himself. And so he told him, get behind what she's doing. He said, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So these two, they were not just a help to Paul. They were a blessing to every church they went to. We all ought to have a reputation of just being a blessing wherever we go. Uh, earlier before church, we were talking a little bit about my, my grandma. My grandma and grandpa, uh, towards the end of their life, they, uh, they just spent their life traveling. And, uh, but they had certain places they would go all the time. And wherever they went, 
they were in church, and wherever church they were in, they were like involved in that church. They served in that church. They, they, they worked in that church, and they had a wonderful reputation everywhere they went. I know some people who have a reputation everywhere they go in churches, and it's leaving a trail of destruction. And let me tell you, this happens to me quite a bit. Okay? I, I was literally in Israel and ran into a pastor who knew somebody from our church. And it's just like, when, and when they bring up people's names, I'm just like, oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah, and there's some people, I have talked with several pastors, and I just, it's, it's horrible, the reputation some people have. And just, like, how can one person cause so much trouble in literally every church they go to? You go to five different churches and you cause problems in five different churches. I think you're the problem, not the churches. That's just my opinion. But Priscilla and Aquila, they had a great reputation in all the churches of the Gentiles. He says, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoner, who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ. And Statius, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them that are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Trifina and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Salute Asyntricitus. I'm not saying half these names right. Phlegon, Hermes, uh, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus, and Julia, and Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with an holy kiss, the churches of Christ. Salute you. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Again, I preached a whole message on this section before, just kind of highlighting certain things that he mentions about them and some principles we can learn. But just a few things I want to point out that I think everybody needs to remember about about these things and about the Apostle Paul. But one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul was great, I do not, I am not here today to take anything away from the Apostle Paul. But one of the reasons he was great, it was because of the people that were behind him. You look at any great man in history. It's never just that man. There's always people that are with him, that back him up, that serve with him. And the Apostle Paul, he is often looked at as the greatest Christian ever, but he never did anything by himself. You know, Paul was rarely in prison, if ever, alone. He always had somebody with him. You know, we all talk about Paul singing in prison. He he had Silas with him. A lot of times when Paul's getting beaten, people that are with him are getting beaten too. I mean, people who were around Paul were asking for problems. And there were, there were some who were ashamed, but Paul mentioned some who were not ashamed of his chain. There were some people, like, I don't want to be associated with Paul. He goes through too much grief, but Paul always had people that were standing with him. And you know what? Thank God for those people. Many of them probably unnamed, or many of them maybe even named in passages like this, but we don't know exactly what they did. But look, they obviously meant something to Paul. He remembered their names and he mentioned them and he told the churches, he told them, salute them. He wanted them to know that they were thinking about him. But every great man has always been somebody surrounded by great people. When a church is great, 
Often credit goes to the pastor, but you know, it's not a church if it's only the pastor. Churches aren't a one-man show, especially great churches are not a one-man show. It's people working together and it's people working under the leadership of a pastor. It's people humbling themselves and submitting to the elder. That is, and, but folks, that elder is nothing without a congregation. That elder is nothing without people of God who are willing to humble themselves and to submit to leadership. And so, you know what? I say all that to just say, thank God for you. Thank God for the people in other churches that are that same way. And you know what? What you do matters. What you do makes a difference. So I, I've been at a conference this week, and one of the things that you hear a lot of talk about, you hear a lot of lamenting over, and I don't blame them, it's pastors quitting. A lot of pastors are quitting. And many times the reason for that is he's just by himself. If it's just one guy, it's not a church. And we need people like these people that are mentioned in these stories. Thank God for every one of these. And in the end of Paul's epistles, we often see him naming the people he wanted to get messages to because these people were important to him. And so, um, you know, as we look at these people, there, there's, so there's a lot we can learn. We're not going to spend time on that today, but... It is a wonderful thing to have a church that is united and of one mind serving the Lord together. And we should strive to preserve the unity and the mission of the church and what we do, uh, you know, and, and what should we do to those who try to undermine it? Because that's what we're about to see here. A church that is united in doctrine, which is what Paul has been doing. Throughout the, remember, this is all one letter here, okay? This isn't 16 different sermons. This is one letter that Paul sent to the church, and Paul would often, when he would go to churches, one of his purposes in going to churches was to, the words the Bible uses is confirm the church. What was he doing? He's strengthening it. He's checking up on it, making sure its doctrine is right and solid, and if they need to learn more, then he would give them more. He would give them more scripture to strengthen what they believe, to confirm what they believe, or to establish. That's another word that the Bible uses. Uh, you know, he would, he, so he would confirm, he would strengthen, he would establish, and he would do that by going, giving them more Scripture to show them that they're right, but also, too, they understood he was the apostle, he had the power of God on him, and it gave them great confidence when the, somebody like the apostle Paul would come, and it's like, hey, you all are doing good. This work that you're doing, you keep doing that. That motivated this church to keep going. Because, you know, sometimes we do things and we second-guess ourselves. We question whether or not we're doing things right or not. And sometimes when Paul would go to churches, he would you know, tell them, hey, you all need to fix some stuff, like the church in Corinth. When he wrote the letter to the church in Corinth, he's like, hey, I've been hearing stuff. Chloe's been gossiping about you all. And I got a few things to say to you. And you know what? He started telling them a few things. And he started straightening these things out about them because they were they were wrong and that strengthened them too in him correcting these things but sometimes he was just letting people know you're doing right keep it up keep going and stay united folks this is going to be a big part of this message we have a mission and we need to be united and it makes a big difference and what should we do with those who would try to undermine that unity to undermine our doctrine well, he says in verse 17, he's back to begging again, like he did in chapter 12. 
It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. These things that Paul wrote to them about salvation, they weren't up for debate. These were things that were Paul was assured of. These were things that Paul backed up with Scripture. And he said, if somebody comes along and it starts teaching you different doctrine that's among you in the church, that's going to undermine the teaching of the church. That's going to undermine the unity that we have in the church. You mark those people because if you're not united on these things, it's going to hurt the mission. And you know, sadly today, a majority of the marking that goes on in churches. The majority of the marking is typically from pastors who are just grandstanding at conferences and things like that, marking people who have nothing to do with the church. Right? That's not exactly... And, and then they use Mark 16 or Romans 16 as their proof text. It's like, wait, no. Paul told the church in Rome, you mark those that are among you that are causing division. Now, is it wrong to mark outsiders that try causing division? Of course it's not wrong. Absolutely. We should do that for sure. But you know what? It's pretty pathetic if we're always willing to mark those on the outside, but not willing to mark those on the inside. Because that's actually what's going on here. That's what Paul is telling them to do. And today, you know, with this age of the internet and stuff like that, it is easy for outsiders to be an influence in the church with communication, everything we have today. But let me tell you, it does not take guts to grandstand around your buddies and to mark. You know, it takes no guts for me to mark John MacArthur or somebody like that. It takes no guts at all. In fact, you know, I could, if I wanted, it could benefit me greatly to mark, I don't know, Joel. O do I need to mark Joel Osteen in this church? Do I, do I need to mark him? Okay, I'll do it just for fun. I'll do it. I, I can do it just for fun so I can make a clip and, or have a sermon title with his name, which will help get attention. Okay. But do, does our church need to mark Joel Osteen? Anybody, anybody being deceived by that guy? Anybody need help with him? I, I, I kind of doubt it. It takes no guts for me to mark Joel Osteen. None. But you know where it takes guts? Marking people from within the church. That's what that's what's difficult. That's what takes guts. And it's easy to mark outsiders. And, and think about this. You know, most of the people we see get marked today, they were never in the churches where they're getting marked. They were never associated with those churches. But you all know there will always be an endless supply of outsiders we can mark. You know, especially as a pastor too, if my church is just full of bloodthirsty thirsty jackals that want to see somebody get marked every week, all I'd have to do, I can go in the phone book. I don't know who they are. I don't know who they are, but I'll bet if I went through our phone book and just started going through the churches and then watching their sermons online, I'll bet I could find heresy from almost all the churches in town. And then I could just mark pastor so-and-so and this pastor. But it's like, we don't even know who they are. And sometimes too, you know, if we're not careful, we can start introducing heresies to our people and introducing heretics to our churches that nobody knows anything about. Them. Again, if I find out that everybody in, in our church has been listening to, you know, sister so-and-so, you know, pastor of whatever, you know, then it's like, I guess I'm going to have to find out about that woman. I'm going to have to mark her and let everybody know she's not acceptable. You know, this, this teaching's bad. But again, I haven't, I haven't, I have no evidence of anybody here being influenced by any woman preachers, especially local ones. 
Do I need to mark Joyce Meyer tonight? Is, she, is, it, is that necessary for, for me to mark Joyce Meyer? I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. I, I'd, I'd love to talk about her face and uh, how she should have sued her surgeon, whoever, whoever uh, surgically implanted that joker smile there. But, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to talk about that, but I don't think, I don't think we really need to. But, think, but again, it, you know, it is very likely in this age of the Internet that a preacher who's never been here or ever been associated with this can potentially become an influence in our church because of the Internet. However, here's the thing which you've got to understand too. If another preacher does start having an influence on this church, and I notice it, it would only be because someone in the church is spreading his doctrine. Okay? Do you all realize there are thousands of people out there preaching damnable heresy? Thousands. So if that damnable heresy that is from that person comes into this church, it's not because they came in here. We never invited them in here. We never invited Joyce Meyer in here. We wouldn't let Joyce Meyer in here. But that means if Joyce Meyer heresy starts coming into our church, it's because someone in our church is spreading that stuff. And so again, I might need to preach a sermon or whatever just to, you know, maybe that somebody's innocent and they don't know any better. They've not been taught a whole lot to let them know, hey, Joyce Meyer is a false prophet. I might need to do that kind of thing. But then you know what? I've marked her. Okay? And that's the thing. If I ever have to mark somebody in this church, then you know what? If you, you, in order to help keep unity in this church, you should not continue spreading their stuff. And so if I do, if I get up next Sunday and I was like, all right, been hearing some Joyce Meyer heresy coming from you ladies in the church. You know what? I got a, we're marking Joyce Meyer just because some of y'all didn't realize this for some reason, but she's a false prophet and she's a woman preacher and we're not supposed to have those. Okay. And then after she's been marked and then you can, you continue to spread her stuff. I don't need to get up and mark Joyce Meyer again. You know who I need? I need to mark you for spreading the Joyce Meyer heresy. But what goes on in most churches today? They mark and mark and mark and mark and mark. Why do they have to keep marking the same person over and over again? Because they don't have the guts to mark the person in the church that's spreading the foolishness. That's why. Because it's called mark and avoid. That's what it's called. Mark and avoid. But no, mark and mark. It's because they don't have the guts. Or because the marking of the person before successfully got them a lot of clicks on YouTube. And so, might as well keep it going. All right, you know, I don't have anything from the Bible that's going to help anybody, so let's at least get the clicks, right? So, understand, just keep that in mind. If we ever have to mark someone here, okay, because, and maybe you've been sharing their stuff, all right, that's the warning shot. In case you didn't know that they, how bad they were. And, you know, because here's the thing, too. You know, we've already marked this guy before, but, you know, let's, you know, I could see, especially a newer person, you know, coming in and maybe sharing Sam Git books because he does a lot of stuff defending the King James. Somebody in their innocence could start again because we, you know, we don't talk about them all the time and haven't talked about them a long time. They might start sharing that stuff, and so I might have to get up and say, "Hey, Sam Gip, you know, is a rucktarded heretic, you know, and here's why and all that kind of stuff." And then, you know, and so that is that's just that's kind of that warning. But if that person continues sharing that stuff. Then again, I don't need to get up and preach another sermon about Sam Gibb. I need to mark that one person. Of course, assuming I've confronted them, you know, privately and all that kind of stuff. So just keep those things in mind. That's it. 
y'all need to understand how marking is actually supposed to work because most of what we see is it's not right and it's not uh it doesn't line up with what we see them doing in the bible and so we've got to make sure we are not spineless and we go after the ones who actually need to be marked those on the inside so look at the verse next verse says for they that serve such uh, for they that are such serve not our lord jesus christ but their own belly and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the sinful the reason some people like to mark and mark and mark sometimes too instead of just dealing with the person who actually needs mark in the church is cuz a lot of times what's actually going on is you have two false prophets or two wolves fighting over the same carcass is what you have going on that's typically what's going on and that's what we see these people, these false prophets, these people who come in church, these people who come in and try to cause division, who try to change the doctrine, who try to disrupt the unity. They are bad people that are just serving themselves, serving their own belly. They have an agenda. They want to be lifted up with pride. They want to feel good about themselves. They want to have a following or something like that. Those people are, are bad. He's explaining the kind of people that they are. So verse 19 says, For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. Which tells me they were actually marking people that they should have marked. And so he, what's he doing? Because I imagine there might have been some that felt like, I think we might have been too mean to them. So he's telling them, you did good in this area. What's he doing now? He's confirming them. He's strengthening them. So next time they won't second guess themselves. They'll immediately mark like they were supposed to. And he says, I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet... I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And so because this... What does that mean too? Wise concerning good, simple concerning evil. Well, because this church was obedient in marking those causing divisions, especially you know concerning the doctrine that they had been taught, I believe they were ignorant of a lot of the evil that was out there. But this was a good ignorance. I think specifically ignorant about a lot of false doctrines that are out there. And we've got to be careful too that in our attempt to expose the false prophet that we don't end up exposing our people to deceptive heresy that could confuse them. Because some people too, they're just not good at even defending truth. Even people who are right sometimes aren't good at defending truth. They're not good at apologetics or something like that. And sometimes they're so bad at just, even when they're technically right, they're so bad at communicating it. When they expose the false doctrine, they don't do a very good job. And in reality, introduce people to a false doctrine that they end up getting caught up in. You know what? It's okay if you don't know about all the false doctrines of the Catholics and the Mormons and the Episcopalians and and whoever. It's okay if we don't understand all those things. It's okay to be simple concerning evil. Well, I, think, I think it's really important we understand all the finer points of transubstantiation. I don't think you know. Listen, if, if you're being deceived by that, you need help on that, we'll gladly help you on that. But if you don't know anything about that, you know what, be glad because there's nothing to be gained from it. There's nothing good you can get from that. So it's okay. And it's all right if we're simple concerning evil as a church. Verse 20 says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, when it comes to this passage, I've been, I've been digging into this passage for a while, and I do want to share some thoughts with you about what Paul just said here, because I do believe this is very important. Right? Now, 
this, you know, upon further study of this, this did not, this passage did not go where I thought it might be going. It's actually, again, it's uh, sometimes the more simple interpretations are the accurate ones. But this is where I really want to focus on tonight because this is really important right here. Okay, again, this chapter, a big chunk of it was him greeting people, right? He's greeting all these people who are all servants, who are all helpers, who are doing a great work. Paul has been, he's wrote this letter to strengthen this church that's doing good. He's, he's assuring them of their doctrine, of, of their practices. He wants them to keep going. This is a good thing. And so after he tells them to greet all these people, you know what? He gives a command. You mark those who cause division. Because it is very, very important for a church, again, to be right in their doctrine, but also to be united, and, and more importantly, not just be right and united, but be actively working towards the advancing of the gospel and that doctrine. Who cares how right we are on salvation if we never tell anybody about it? Who cares how good our doctrinal statement is if nobody knows what we preach? If we're not getting it out, getting it out there. So this is very important that we understand what he's talking about here, because I want to talk about how we can, I I believe our church can bruise the head of Satan. And I like, I like the sound of that because notice what he says. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What does that mean? The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Well, in Genesis chapter, uh, first off, what does shortly mean? Because some would say, well, didn't Jesus bruise Satan's head at the cross? And let me just say, yes, okay. I, I believe he did. But here he's saying that the God of peace is going to bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So, some, you know, some think that this is like prophetic, something that's going to happen in the future at Christ's return. But the thing is, he said shortly. Okay? And shortly means something. In fact, let's look at every use of the word shortly in the Bible. In Genesis 41, 32, it says, And as for the dream, the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God and will shortly bring it to pass. And you know what? It was shortly after that, they had the seven year, good years and then the seven bad years immediately. Shortly, then it meant a very short period of time. And it was, it was a short period of time. Okay, so then Jeremiah twenty-seven sixteen. Also, I spake unto the priests and to all this people saying, Thus saith the Lord, hearken not to the words of your prophets that prophesy unto you saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house shall now shortly be brought back from Babylon for they prophesy a lie unto you. So think about this here. Jeremiah said, hey, there are false prophets because at this point, they've had all their, the temple destroyed. They've had all the things of the temple stolen and taken to Babylon. And they had false prophets there among them that were saying, hey, it's shortly going to come back. We're shortly going to get these things back. But Jeremiah knew, no, it's not going to be shortly. That's a lie. They're lying to you. Now, how long was it? 70 years. Okay. So short, 70 years, if it's, if it's more than 70 years, it's not shortly. These guys were prophesying a lie, saying something was shortly going to happen that wasn't for another 70 years. Okay, So what Paul said was about to happen can't be 2,000 years later because that's not shortly. 
That would be a lie. Shortly has to be, has to be soon. Some of you might be getting nervous because of a passage that says shortly. We're, we're going to get to that. But Ezekiel 7, 8. Now will I shortly pour out my fury upon thee and accomplish mine anger upon thee and I will judge thee according to thy ways and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. And I think it's very clear we're not going to go into all the details of that that it was very in the very near future. Acts 25, 4. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. And we weren't talking a very long period of time. It was. It was very, very quick. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.19 But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. Uh, Philippians 2.19 But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Philippians 2.24 But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. So these are all things within it. Not just, I mean, at least within Paul's lifetime. Okay, and it and shortly just meant, you know, I get I get that can that can be a relative term, to a certain extent. But every time we're seeing it in the Bible, I mean, we're talking very near future. First Timothy three fourteen, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Second uh, Timothy four nine, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Hebrews thirteen twenty three, know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he come shortly, I will see you. 2 Peter 1.14, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Peter said, I'm shortly going to die in a very near future. 3 John 1.14, but I trust that I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name. So every mention that we have seen so far, it has been a very short period of time. And we're talking months, weeks, days, maybe Maybe years, for sure not more than 70 years. Because that was a lie when people, said, when people were saying they were going to shortly bring these things back. So, that obviously, though, creates two. Because the Bible, it's in there two more times in the Bible. In Revelation 1.1, says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Uh-oh. Preterism is right, right? No, not necessarily. You know, unfortunately, when we read our Bibles too often, we read our Bibles looking for information that we are interested in. Preachers are the worst at this. We often read our Bibles looking for a text to go along with what we want to preach instead of reading the Bible to see what God has to say to us. It's very important we read our Bibles that way. Preachers are the worst at this because we always need something to preach. But sometimes we go to the scriptures looking for something the Bible's not trying to talk about. And then we end up pulling something from the scriptures that God wasn't trying to describe. Got to watch out for that. But Revelation 22, 6 says, And he said unto me, These things are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants things which must shortly be done. Everything in Revelation has to happen within a short time, right? That's what the preterists will tell you. But actually, this isn't a problem at all. If you let the Bible tell you what it's trying to tell you instead of us trying to prove futurists are right or preterists right or whatever. What do we actually do with this? Well, I think a key reference here is notice how he says in both instances where it mentions shortly coming to pass, he mentions his servants. Okay, 
Who are his servants? Well, we are, right? No. You know who his servants were he was writing to? The seven churches in Asia Minor. That's who he was writing to. We're always so focused on our part of the story that we ignore their part of the story, which would have been their main focus. Who is John writing to? The seven churches. And what's going on here? Jesus is telling John things to tell to the seven churches about those churches. Each of those seven churches all had prophecies specifically about them. Some people want to focus on church ages stuff. No, these things were about those churches and things that prophecies about that directly applied to that church. The, the prophecy to the church in Smyrna was about things in Smyrna, not Pergamos. And so the things which must shortly come to pass, those are just the prophecies of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So how do you know it's not the rest of the book? Well, again, he's writing to his servants of things that are going to come to pass. He's referring to things that are on them. He tells them about those things. After he tells them about those things, he does something else. In chapter 4, we're not going to turn there, but he says, now, John, I'm going to show you things which shall be hereafter. What do we have going on? When we get into chapter 4, none of the things from chapter 4 to 21 through 21 are specifically about those churches, but they are about things hereafter. He ends up, not so not Jesus, he's giving prophecies for these seven particular churches, but he's also doing something else. He is giving these seven churches, he's entrusting them with what we could call New Testament eschatology. New Testament doctrine of last things. The Old Testament eschatology had already taken place. In 70 AD. And it didn't turn out well because Israel rejected their Messiah. We are now in the era of the new covenant. And the new and better covenant. The vineyard has been lent out to other husbandmen. And now with that new covenant, it comes a new eschatology. And there's similarities to the Old Testament eschatology. Because the things that were not fulfilled in the Old Testament will be fulfilled in a better way under the new covenant. So there's parallels that we can draw from there. There's things that we can draw from that. But at the end of the day, he's, he's doing this, I think, giving it to the seven churches too for preservation purposes too. Because this stuff needed to last and stand the test of time. Because these things weren't going to happen until hereafter. These things weren't going to shortly come to pass. I believe that's, that's a reference to chapters 2 and 3. And that seems weird to a lot of people because their focus... And, I, and I'm the same way. When I read Revelation chapters 2 and 3... I like to hurry up and get through those and get to the stuff that we're looking for. The stuff about us. But you know what? Think about it. If you were the church in Sardis, okay, what, what was the second church? I don't know. I, what, was the, what's, what was the last one? Laodicea. Okay, let's say you're the church in Laodicea. And then all of a sudden, they're like, hey, we're going to read this letter we got from John. And there, there, there's a prophecy directly from Jesus Christ about our church. So what do you think the church in Laodicea is doing as they're reading it? When they're talking about Philadelphia and Sardis and all these other Pergamos and all these other places, they're like, hurry up and get to ours. They're not even really paying attention to that stuff. But then all of a sudden when they get to the church in Laodicea, they're paying real close attention to that because that's about them. That's their favorite part of the book. Well, they probably didn't like it too much because he didn't say much good stuff about them. But that's the part they're laser focused on. And so we, do, we often kind of ignore that stuff. But folks, those prophecies in chapter 2 and 3 were written and given directly to 
Christ's servants, and they were prophecies specifically about those people. And so, uh, we don't need to make all of Revelation something that's going to shortly come to pass. Right? So, a little prophecy lesson that we throw in here too, just to show you the consistency of the use of the word shortly. The preterists are right. It does mean shortly. As in a small period of time. We don't need to keep running to days of a thousand years and a thousand years of a day. We don't need to keep doing that for everything. No, shortly, it does. It means shortly, and I believe those things shortly came to pass. So, uh, when we get, uh, so back to, so let's go back to verse 17 of Romans chapter 16. So again, just so, what is this bruising Satan under their feet? Because this was something that was to come for them. And it was, but it was also something specific for that church. I don't believe Jesus is talking about a big prophecy that's for all of us. No, he's talking directly to this church. I believe the bruising of Satan did in fact happen at the cross. That's, that's what I believe. But why did he say this about this church? And because remember, this chapter has been about as personal as it can get. And this message directly applied to that church that God was going to bruise Satan under their feet shortly. So what does he mean? And, cause, and can God bruise Satan again under our feet as well? I kind of like the thought of that. Anybody like the thought of bruising Satan under your feet? I mean, I, I, I'm all for that. And I, and I, I believe he can. I, I believe he has. And so let's, let's look at this again and get context. And let's remember everything we've talked about the last 16 weeks. Right, are we capable of doing that? Because okay, remember, the church at Rome, they probably read, got all, did all this in one night. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. We're going to read it tonight. They read the whole thing. Didn't have chapter vision. All right, we're going to read chapter 1 this week and chapter 2 next week. And they didn't read over a 16-week period. They would have read it all at once. And so when they get to chapter 16, remember, verse 17, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and contraries, uh, offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. And the majority of this letter was about the doctrine of salvation. Chapters 1 through 11, basically all about salvation. He was confirming that, strengthening that. He wanted them to be united in that doctrine of salvation. Now, while chapters 12 through 16 have not been about salvation, it has been about behavior. And understand, when our Christian behavior gets out of line, it distracts and it hurts the work of God, which ultimately hinders the message of salvation. It hinders. Why do people quit giving the gospel? It's not usually because they quit believing the gospel. It's usually because they got involved in sin. Why do people get out of church? Is it because they lost their salvation? No, it's typically because they get involved in sin and they're still saved. But that hinders the work of spreading the gospel. And that is ultimately what we are about as a church. This isn't written to an individual. This is written to a church. And so he warns them about marking those that cause division, avoiding them. He says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And remember, simple is not a compliment. So when you let people who want to cause division divide you, you're one of the simpletons, okay? And you know, and bless your heart, they're in church. And bless your heart, you know, we're, we're all simple at one time. But don't stay simple. Don't stay easy deceived. 
You know, as George W. Bush, who deceived me at one time, but as he said, you fool me once, shame on me. You fool me twice, you can't get fooled again. I don't know if I got that exactly right. Remember that famous quote? <laughs> you know, listen, we all get fooled sometimes, but we need to grow. We need to learn. And so these deceptions, these distractions, they take people out of the game. They take people out of the work. He says, for your obedience is come abroad unto all men. They were doing it right. I'm glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Let me tell you, it's a blessing when we have somebody in this church who's saved. They know how to get other people saved. And it's a blessing if you're talking to that person one of these days and somebody says something about Calvinism. They're like, what's Calvinism? You know, I, I, I sometimes envy preachers that I've talked to. You know, Pastor Obi. Uh, you know, he's, you know, he, and he obviously had his own baggage he had to deal with from his Church of God background that he was from. But there's a lot of just IFB issue stuff that's just completely foreign to him because he never was a part of, you know, your typical old independent fundamental Baptist churches. And so I'm just amazed sometimes at, when I've been talking to him, things I've had to explain to him. And it is, it is very eye-opening explaining IFBisms to people who've never been a part of it. Because you're like, as you start explaining these things to them and you have no Bible, you have no Bible to back up why we're doing these things, you're like, you realize this is really stupid. <laughs> I mean, again, try explaining not having an altar call to an old IFB preacher. And then, and you know, and, and, but then at the same time too, while they'll, make, they'll look at you like you're some kind of heretic, this is, what, this is what can really help you. Go explain altar calls to someone who's never been in an IFB church and try explaining it to them from the Bible and watch the way they look at you. It's very eye-opening. Because let me tell you, I don't think anything of it. I think nothing of IFB culture. It's all I know. But I'm telling you, when you find that clean slate, that person of total innocence, and then they ask you to show them from the Bible what that's all about, it's just like, you, you're like this is stupid. It, it's very, it's a very interesting thing. I've I've had that experience several times, and it's very enlightening. But it's okay to be simple concern. And I'm not even I'm not saying altar calls are evil. I right? I don't think they're evil. But again, some, you know, Calvinism or something like that. Yeah, that is evil. And when people just don't understand, they never heard of that. You know what? Just say that's got to be a blessing. And you know, and and here's the thing too. I I try to be merciful. I struggle with it. I fail, but often too, people who have never been uh, uh, around the pre-trib world, okay, often we have people within our own associations that are often very hostile towards pre-tribbers, which I find offensive, okay? I, I get aggravated and offended when people who've never been a part of the old IFB are critical of the old IFB. Okay? I, I think they have no right to shut their mouths. Okay, that, that's, that's my opinion on that. But at the same time, too, it is, it is pretty funny explaining pre-trib to people who've never been brainwashed into the lie of it. And that's another way you can realize how goofy it is. Talking to an innocent who actually knows the truth with an open Bible. Because I'm always trying to prove they're not heretics. And it's really hard when it's somebody who's been taught the truth and they've never been really subjected to the lie. And I'm like, well, and they're like, well, what do they say about this? And what do they say about this? And then when I start explaining those things to them, I just like, 
And then I and then I got to turn around and say they're not heretics. And I don't believe they're heretics. Okay, I know I, I said I was one of them at one time. There's there's an innocence there. I think these people can't understand, but it's okay to be simple concerning evil. It's a very good thing. I'm getting sidetracked here. But so while this church is doing good, clearly there were some things that need to be addressed. And there were things they needed to be assured of. And often in Acts, in Paul, he would go, he would confirm, strengthen, establish those churches. These churches were already doing good in many ways, but Paul understood that it was important to assure people of these things and to get those things set in stone. And sometimes you can have a church where people are going through the motions of certain religious practices, but and, 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 and these practices are right, but they don't really believe them. Folks, there are many churches today, I am convinced of this, who have soul winning because that's what you're supposed to do if you're IFB. But they don't really believe in it. Okay, again, if, if, you, if you truly believe in soul winning, I don't think it's possible for you to truly believe you have to repent of your sins for salvation. But if you actually do believe you have to repent of your sins for salvation, I don't believe you believe in soul winning. I think you're going through the motions to appease your IFB buddies. You, but you, you just can't convince me that a true soul winner believes that doctrine. They might use that term not knowing, you know, what, you know, they might be a little confused about that. But if you're somebody who truly believes that doctrine, I don't believe you believe in soul winning. I have Calvinists who try to tell me, I go soul winning. Yeah, right. You know what? I would, I would pay you 20 bucks to let me go with you just to watch to see how you do it. I, I'm going to put out, the, I will give any Calvinist $20 if they let me, yeah, yeah, 20, that's all I can afford. I'll have $20. If they will let me go with them while they go sewing, I want to watch. <laughs> That's going to be funny. Seeing that, it's going to be, I mean, I, I want to see that train wreck. I won't video it, but I will tell people about it. I reserve the right to tell people about the experience. But sometimes you can have a church where people are going through the motions of certain religious practices that are right, but they don't really believe it. And so think about this. Even if you're saved and right in the gospel, it's possible that your faith is weak. When it comes to getting others saved, out souling, we don't see anything physically happen when someone calls on the Lord. It still takes faith, even for us, that someone truly got saved. And a lot of saved people struggle with these things. And a lot of people just give up. And then, and let me tell you, if you ever want to give up on soul winning, I can, I can recommend a ton of churches where you can go and they can give you doctrine that will make you feel good about your lack of soul winning. Right? But just, I'm tired of people coming in here and acting like they believe this stuff and then they just turn around and walk away from it. Just please admit you were a fake. Please. Just admit that you were a fake if you're going to do that. So what's Paul saying in verse 20? I can think it's very simple. I believe Paul wrote this letter confirming their beliefs about salvation. Paul wanted them to make sure they didn't allow for any division on this subject. Paul was convinced if the church would fully unite around the gospel that he had just laid out for them and would work together in spreading that gospel as a church, they would bruise Satan under their feet. Because again, ultimately, Jesus did the work of salvation. Jesus bruised Satan under his feet at the cross, right? I mean, what work got us saved? The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But at the same time, too, while the work for salvation was done at the cross, for it to have an effect on someone's life, they need to hear and believe the gospel, don't they? 
I mean, the work of the cross doesn't do anything if nobody hears the gospel. If nobody hears the gospel, it can't do anything. And so when a congregation of people get united around the truth of the gospel and they work to spread that gospel and people start getting saved, you know what you're doing? You're curb stomping the devil. You're bruising Satan under your feet. And what Satan often does, though, to the churches is he sends people in to cause division that will cause them to mess with their doctrine because if he can mess with their doctrine, he will get them failing to follow the truth about salvation. To, uh, he will get them to stop following Romans 12 through 16 that talks about our behavior. And, and, and a gospel that isn't being spread will have no impact. A perverted gospel will also not have any impact. We can't let either thing happen to us as a church. We've got to keep curb stomping the devil. And that's why it's so important that you don't get caught up in stupidity, that we don't let people come in and start messing with our doctrine and trying to change things, that we don't let people come in and negatively affect our behavior and to cause division and disunity and all these things. We've got something that's too important to do. We've got a gospel message we're supposed to be uniting around. We're not a country club. I'm, I'm glad we can come together and have a good time and some good fellowship. I'm glad we can come together and sing some songs and praise the Lord and there's things that we can enjoy and have fun with. I like eating good meals together and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the purpose of all of those things should be to just keep us all edified so we will stay busy in advancing the gospel and in busy and spreading the gospel to people because that's how we bruise Satan under our feet. We don't bruise Satan under our feet by just building a really cool building. I mean, if it can be a tool for edification and all that, that's great. We don't bruise Satan under our feet by just going and having the funnest activities where we just have a great time. And I'm all for having fun activities. But folks, when we go to Tanner's this Friday, we're not going to bruise Satan under our feet going to Tanner's having a good time. Now, we're going to edify each other so we can stay united and stay encouraged and, and all that so we can you know, remain in unity so we can go out soul winning again and curb stomp the devil some more. But that's what he's simply talking about there. I don't believe this is some big prophetic thing. No, he's letting this church know. He's confirming. Hey, guess what? You're right on your doctrine. You're right on your practices. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. You're right. You keep telling people about this. Hey, here's how you're supposed to be acting. You're doing good. You're doing good. You keep doing this. And if you keep doing this, let me tell you something. The God of peace is going to bruise Satan under your feet shortly. You're going to make an impact. You're going to do some damage to the devil. And we do damage to the devil every time we're out there getting people saved. And we've got to, that's why we have to stay united. We cannot let things mess that up. The work is too important. And so verse 21, it says, Timotheus, my work fellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sospater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, my host of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. What's he doing there? Again, that establish, that's strengthening. And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So we should all be about strengthening our beliefs and doctrine. We should fight against those who want to come in and cause the view, uh, division, 
who want to cause confusion, doubtful disputation. We don't have to put up with that. Somebody wants to come in here and like, you know, I, I think we can, you know, I think we ought to look a little more into the five points of Calvinism. Repent or be repent or be baptized for five minutes. You know, you just get out. Of, you know, just we're not going to put up with that stuff. We're not going to allow that kind of thing. And I, I think you got, you know, I think you got to have some works. I mean, I think you, you at least got to prove you're saved by your works. Take away from the focus of Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ. You know, I, I obviously have to repent of some sins, right? In order to truly be saved. You know, let, let's wait and see what happens to these people. And just, you go discouraging everybody from sowing. No, you can go join the Calvinist church in town. You can go join, you can go join that graveyard. You don't need to be a part of this church. We need to stop that. If we get divided, it will hurt our impact and our ability to bruise Satan under our feet. And think about this. So I, I, why, did, why did he say it that way? How does, are you sure that's what it is spreading the gospel is how we bruise Satan under our feet? I think it is. Because think about this. What did he say in Romans 10, 15? And how shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. You know what you ought to think of when you're out there walking the streets, spreading the gospel? You ought to think about stepping on the devil's head. That's what you should think about. While you are standing there giving somebody the gospel, you know what? Go ahead and do this. Next time you're giving somebody the gospel, you know, put your head, your foot up on a step or something and just pretend you're stepping on the devil's head right then. I got you right now, devil. I'm stepping on your head. And then when they get saved, and, and after the people calling the Lord for salvation get saved, just kind of, So, uh, yeah, yeah, you know what? While doing that might not really do anything but make you feel a little bit better, you did just stomp the devil's head. That's exactly what you did. He said in Ephesians 6.15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So, you know how we bruise the head of Satan? You go out soul winning. You go out telling people about Jesus. We, as a church, we remain united on these things. We remain, remain united in our focus, in our doctrine, and we keep curb stomping the devil. And I don't know about you, that kind of thing is a motivator for me. Who's going to promise next time we're giving somebody the gospel, they're going to imagine standing on the devil's head? I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. I want to see somebody rub your foot in it, too. And if the people aren't looking, you know, because you don't want to be weird, just, you know, just... After you walk around, just give it one more. Just one, one more kick. Just, just one more. <laughs> I, I had to do it. Because I do. I hate the devil. I hate the devil. But what can we really do any, to him before he gets thrown in the lake of fire? We can bruise his head. You can tell other people about Jesus. That is the one thing that we can do to the devil. And I say we keep on doing it to the devil. And guess what? He'll keep messing with us. He'll keep sending weirdos and freaks in to try to cause division. But you know what? Let's stay united. Listen, if you can't be united in your love for people and love for souls, then let's get united in our hate for the devil and our enjoying of just stepping on his head and, and curb something. In fact, you know what? We should, you know, I don't believe in idols or anything like that, but we, <laughs> if it wouldn't send a bad message, it would almost be fun to just put a devil head <laughs> out there, outside somewhere that we all step over as we leave to go soul winning.
we're not going to do that because a lot of people are going to get the wrong idea about it. But it would be, it would, it would be, it would be fun. <laughs> it would be cool. Maybe we'll do it one week. I don't know. But anyway, with that, let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray this message was a help and encouragement to everyone. I pray, Lord, that we will do that, that we will be a church that regularly just stomps the brains out of the devil by going and just spreading the gospel to as many people as possible. Lord, we will never forget and we always understand you were the one that did the work. You were the one that stomped his head at the cross. But Lord, I pray you'll help us to be effective in spreading that message and telling other people about it so we can see more people save and the devil lose even more. In your name we pray. Amen.